One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Their pitch is a women's football podcast in collaboration with Adidas Football. Welcome to Their Pitch Euro Special 2022 with the feature, special feature with Willie Kirk. I'm going to say that uh, now because this is the seventh episode he he is with me. And as usual, we have a guests uh, and I've kind of invited guests that will suit uh, the matter this time because we're going to talk about the final, of course. So one from the UK and one from Germany. And let's start with the one from Germany. Who are you and how are you? Well, obviously I'm fantastic. Um, I'm Jasmina Schweimler, um, a Frauen-Bundesliga expert from Germany. I've been covering the league since, since 2016 and just very overwhelmed by what's happening right now at this uh, European Championship. So I'm excited to, to chat about it. Yeah, we're very happy to have you on here. And let's call calling England. How how are you doing, Tom Gary? Hi, Mia. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. My name's Tom Gary. I am the women's football reporter for the Daily Telegraph. Um, absolutely loving this tournament. I've had a um, very lucky job for the last few years to cover the women's football. Um, but I should also introduce myself as the very foolish reporter who came onto this podcast before the tournament and predicted that Germany would crash out in the group of death. So um, I'm amazed I've been invited back. In fact, actually, I really thought I'd be consigned to the history books when it came to podcasting. Um, but it's very nice to be back. Thanks for the reminder, Tom. We might talk about that a little bit later on here. <laughs> But now we can introduce you, Willie, as the new women's football director of Leicester Women. Congratulations, finally. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. It's been, a, I think, a badly kept secret over the last week or two. But uh, yeah, we finally announced it yesterday as a club. So yeah, really excited. I've, I've been in, I've been in quite a few days already. Although the official start date is not until next Monday, but yeah, there's a lot, a lot a lot to be done and yeah really exciting role so looking forward to it yeah we're excited to see where where you're going to take Leicester as a club from here um, but we're here to talk about uh, the semi-final action and obviously I feel kind of uh, you know like the outsider here now because <laughs> because my I told you before we started recording that my my Swedish heart is still broken but we'll talk about that later Uh, because I'm, I'm still excited about the game um, last night between France and Germany because I thought that was a really good game of football. Um, and Jazz, I, I, I can imagine how you feel, but just, just tell us uh, how uh, is Germany feeling about this? I mean, like, like the people in Germany. Everybody is super hyped. Like this tournament is really. I hope it's like doing things for women's football in Germany because, like I said, playing a good tournament could really help 
take uh, our sport to the next level because over here we're still talking about general conditions being improved like just very general structures that still need improvement and i hope that this can give them the kind of attention it needs because that's actually what alex pop told me months ago that playing a good tournament will probably help bring that conversation up so very excited about that but like the news are all over it like a lot of pop pictures on the front pages today <laughs> deservedly so so um yeah everybody's super hyped even the tv numbers are like rocket high so it's good and it feels amazing because like i know how hard so many of these players worked for this and, and what they were hoping for and it's all coming true now yeah and, and it's it's I, i'm still kind of amazed by the fact that women's football is seen in a certain way in Germany because you're always up there to compete for, for trophies. And we're going to get back to, to Tom's uh, preview of Germany. But um, <laughs> Willie, are, are you surprised that uh, the team England will face on Wembley on Sunday is Germany? No, I think Tom is, as he said, with regards to his prediction on Series 1, when I predicted one of Sweden, England or Germany would win it, and Tom said Italy would have a good tournament and Germany would have a bad tournament. <laughs> so, no, I'm not surprised. I think this German team is incredibly exciting. I think last night was a perfect example of the depth they've got where, you know, they're missing... You, Everybody was talking about it was a big blow, uh, losing Bill, Bill just before the game. And uh, she's replaced by an, an outstanding teenager. And I think she's still a teenager in, in Julie Brand. 19, incredible, incredible level. And last, last night was previously the best game I had been to live was PSG Lyon in the Champions League final at Cardiff. But last night surpassed that. That is... The, easily the best game I've ever been at. The level was just incredible from start to finish. Uh, it was fascinating. It was inspirational. Players, fans, I like, you know, we talk about inspiring young kids to go and play football. This, this should inspire every current player and every current coach to, to try and get to these levels because it's been a, it's been a great tournament and I, and I hope the final lives up to the semi-finals because the semi-finals have been fantastic. Uh, and last night was yeah. I, I'm not surprised Germany's depth and talent for such a young. They've got good experience in certain areas, but such a young team like Lena Oberdorf is Julie Brand. You know, we're talking about kids. We're talking about kids here, and they're just they're, they're proven to be world class players. Yeah, and over to you, Tom. Uh, for the next ten years, actually, I. Um, to see the youngsters for Germany now, I think, you know, we'll, I'm excited to see what they can do now for the next decade, if not more, because the, those young players that Willie was just mentioning and just the the depth of talent around the, the Bundesliga in general, that's very, very ominous, I think, for everybody else. Um, they've been excellent, Germany. Uh, I think right from the performance against Denmark, you could see them in business. Um I think for fools like me who are wrong about them before the tournament, I suppose, I guess, I read probably a bit too much into the loss against Serbia back in April. Clearly, they're playing on a very different level right now. But what's impressed me about Germany um, is the game management. When they've got a lead in a match, 
I guess I know with the small exception of their first goal they conceded last night, but once, once they've taken a lead in the game and in the latter stages last night, their, their game management was superb, which when you compare that, for example, to Spain, who was six minutes away from getting through to the semi-final, and I think made some quite naive, um, you know, choices and decisions when, when they had, you know, six minutes left to see out the game. Um, Germany have been fantastic in that regard. Um, there, and of course we have to talk about Pop, who is the feel good story of this tournament, you know, uh, missed the last two Euros with injury and now is joint top goal scorer and looks so incredibly determined and her, her movement to dart in front of her marker for both of the goals last night just exemplified how dangerous she is in the box. I was really impressed with her in the post-match press conference as well. For example, she was asked um, about winning the golden boot and her message was very clear. No, I'm, you know, we were here for the team trophy. We want to win the title. And um, that, that I think epitomizes the mentality that the whole of the German squad have had. It doesn't appear to be about any individuals. It seems to be about a team. They're a very good team and they fully deserve to be in the final. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm, I haven't thought about this a lot, but, but yes, the, the German national team and the head coach, it, it, it must mean some kind of courage, courage to play these young players. I mean, she just, she just trusts them because I feel like in many other national teams, it isn't like that because you want, you want the, all the players to play because they have experience, but is this, not possible in Germany right now to to have players, all the players, or is this actually the best players in? This is a stupid <laughs> question. I realize that, of course, they are the best best players, but but they are young, and and someone you have to when you have young players, you have to have someone that believes in them enough to to dare to put them on the pitch in a starting eleven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously they're the best, and I just. In general, the talent pool Germany has is incredible. There's also so many young players who I would describe like evenly as good who didn't make the cut. I just think of striker Selina Cerci, who plays for Köln now. She was very close to making that cut as well, and it's like still very young. So I think even making the decision was probably very tough for Stecklenburg to select the squad. But I think the fact... I mean, we just got to say it how it is. Like most of these youngsters play for Bayern or Wolfsburg and have that experience on top level, you know, playing Champions League in and out, competing against the best teams in the world. And that obviously helps. So, you know, just like I said, Lena Oberdorf is playing her second big tournament already. She was already at the World Cup in 2019. So um that just speaks volumes. And I think uh, Jule Brand, it was a bit risky to bring her because this is her first big tournament. She doesn't really have that experience yet. She played Champions League with Hoffenheim, but, you know, it was not many games. But um, I think she she played incredible, like, so calm, like, as if it didn't matter, you know, the big stage, what's on stake. It was just very impressive. So I think... If this team is this good already, oh my goodness, what's going to happen in a few years? <laughs> so exciting. I, I said this prior to the tournament, that this squad is probably one of the most exciting ones I've seen in Germany. Yeah, and I I, I can tell you this. I rem- remember Lena Oberdorf came on in the quarterfinal against Sweden in the World Cup, and she had a dangerous header <laughs> like in the dying minutes of, of the game. 
Um, I, I can clearly remember that because Fridolina Rolfe, I think she was talking about Lena Overdorf in a Swedish podcast when, when they discussed that game. Uh, so already back then, but I, I must fo- uh, have a follow up question uh, on that because what do you think it means for, for German football women's in general that the players are in fact mostly from Bayern Munich and Wolfsburg? What, what does that mean for your league? I mean, yeah, we still have a very uneven league, I would say. But that's also because, like I mentioned already, the structures are very different. Like Bayern and Wolfsburg are professional and they like have their own own training facilities and, you know, have access to everything. But then there's already also teams who don't even like have full time uh people there like getting massages and stuff just like two hours a day but not access the whole time and I think that's like I said we need to work on that first equal opportunities and that's what the players will always tell you we always talk about equal pay and I I understand that and I'm very supportive of that but then when I ask the players they're like let's talk about and discuss equal opportunities first and that's access to the same training facilities making a living with it you know so we can fully focus on playing football because in in the farm Bundesliga there's still teams where the players have to work on the side and, and there's just no way you can expect them to perform a hundred percent when you have like work on your mind you're exhausted from working full-time hours and that's just still a big issue we face over here yeah it's some it's like in sweden we have two top teams um but yeah it's it's just interesting to to and i think we should bring it up whenever we get the the opportunity to but willie you said it was one of the best games you have ever been to why did germany win this like you know with your coaching perspective now What did they do? Yeah, I think they they managed to control large parts of the game. For me, the big threat was how well could France counter Germany? Uh, And I think think Julia Gwynn, I think she was very, very important because she's not, or she certainly, I've seen her play like an attacking fullback, but she was almost like an inverted fullback last night and she supports in the field rather rather than up the line, up the wing. So I think her positioning can sometimes immediately nullify any counter-attacks. I think she takes up really intelligent positions. I think Lena Oberdorf is, an, and I say this in the nicest possible way, is just a beast. And she covers so much ground that you Germany could play with that single pivot knowing that she could cover the whole width of the pitch. And it just allows them to send both midfielders forward. And those both midfielders forward at times really pinned France back into their own half. And and France, France just couldn't get a hold of the ball for any sustained amount of time. And most of their chances came off the counter or, or most of their... Their progressions into the into the Germany half would come off the counter, but they wouldn't be sustained for any amount of time. And I think it was only a matter of time. I thought France done well to immediately fight back to get to get the goal back because that was really important to go on at half time level. But I think then the, the introduction, if you look at the French subs, I don't think the French subs. Batcha did well in the second half but she didn't have that much to live up to because I think Mallard was really poor 
but then apart from that, I don't think the French subs really influenced the game in a positive way. Whereas the German subs, and in particular Sydney Lohmann, I mean, she she came on and just just completely got a grip of the game and and just bullied the French midfield. And again, you know, we're talking about a player who's who's only recently turned twenty two year old, and for her to come on and those physical attributes she's got, but coupled with the technical ability that she's got, she played she played one she played one switchy play. I think. In fact, I think it's that that was the start of the the build up to the second goal. Uh, it started off her winning the ball, I think, turning the ball over and switching, switching play. Uh, so I, th- I think the substitutes from Germany had a much bigger influence than the French substitutes did, and, and ultimately they had the, the strength and depth to to keep going. You know, I think that game could have went on for four hours, and Germany would have still looked fresh, whereas France would have tired and tired and tired and hung on to the game, but Germany still looked. As fresh as ever in the first minute. Yeah, and what uh, I also noticed last night, because even though we all know that Lena Oberdorf is, yeah, she's like you said, a beast in defending, but she also showed uh, her passing skills last night, I thought, because she made a few very nice passes. So, because it, you, can, you can see when you just scroll social media, and I thought it was kind of interesting because people started to compare her with Kira Walsh, but Will you tell us what's the differences between a player like Elena Oberdorf and Kira Walsh and what's the similarities? I'd love to see them play together because I think if you did, everybody else in the team could just go and attack. <laughs> Both fullbacks could go, the, the other midfielder could go. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think the similarities are their reading of the game and their intelligence for, for being so young, their ability to receive the ball and move the ball in tight areas, you know, without ever looking under pressure. You know, when, when Kira gets the ball with a player tight to her, she still doesn't look under pressure. She never ever gives off that, that panic. You know, that sometimes opponents can, can see and feel and play on it, but she never ever gives the opponents that feeling. So I think they both play in tight areas really, really well. Uh, I, I think, I think Kira, Kira actually probably finds shorter, quicker passes than Oberdorf does. But Oberdorf, I think, can then, I think she can do more going forward actually. But in that Germany team, she doesn't need to. For me, she played the pass of the tournament last night. I think it was midway through the second half. She played a left-footed reverse pass, and it was it was pass of the tournament in terms of the 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 pace on the pass, the accuracy of the pass was incredible. So the differences would be that Oberdorf is more physical, without a doubt. You know, she'll she'll win she'll win headers more than Kira will. Uh, she will she will smash into challenges and really leave her physical mark on opponents. You know, every opponent knows they've been in a game if they've come up against Lena Oberdorf and they've had to withstand a challenge. Uh, but yeah, so I think that's some of, this, some of the similarities, but also some of the differences as well. I'd love to see yeah, them play together. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if Wolfsburg <laughs> are going to sign uh, Kira Walsh or Man City are going to sign <laughs> Lena Oberdorf, but I'd love to see them both play together. Yeah, it would be a, a magical moment if we 
ever are able to see them play. But but Tom, um, as since England already was clear uh, for this final, when you watch this game, uh, what team did you feel um, that you wanted England to go up against while watching Germany playing France? Um, I th- oh, I think that um, England. Well, secretly, everybody in England, I think, wanted France to get through because they know the formidable strength of of Germany um, and having never lost a final in, in the Euros um, as well. But I, France, um, who I thought actually played very well last night, but they are they're just a team who, uh, and it's I know it's a slightly lazy sort of way of looking at it, but they're really missing Katoto. That you know, there's been so many moments in the quarter final and the semi final when you just thought if they could finish off um, some of these moments, then what a different kind of night it would be. I, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm, I, I don't try and look at it as a fan, but the England, the Englishman within me um, would have preferred, would have thought that England had a better chance against France. Um, but the, the, it, the German, yeah, it's going to be so close. The, the, what, some of the things Willie was talking about there, actually, I think are where the final will be completely won and lost because, um, certainly in the second half against Sweden and for a latter part of the first half, Kirby was finding so many pockets of space and little intricate bits of movement and interplay in that in that number 10 position. And I'm not convinced that Oberdorf will allow that to happen. And on the flip side, we saw about 15, 20 minutes of, of Walsh being marked out of the game at the start of the game, I think, by Ashlani. And for 15, 20 minutes, England seemed to struggle to get going early on. Um, and so I'm just, I kind of really look fascinated to see how those battles in midfield are going to work out this time around in the final. And I'm also very, I guess, from an England point of view, if we're looking a bit, a bit more of an, uh, as an Englishman rather than a neutral journalist, I'm worried about the English fullbacks against these wonderful wingers for Germany. And, and Hoof, for example, who, um, I mean, when was the last time Hoof didn't give you a 7 out of 10, at least, performance? She's never really a 10 out of 10, but she's always at least a 7. And... Um, I'm slightly concerned about her coming up against Rachel Daly uh, and also on the, I mean, bronze has been so attack minded, which on the one hand for England is brilliant to see her overlapping with Beth Mead and giving that attacking support. But we saw bronze exposed behind herself at right back so many times against Sweden and even against Northern Ireland. So um, there are worrying areas there for England that they'll have to get right tactically if they're going to um, overcome Germany. Jess, this must feel pretty nice to hear uh, that England is uh, no, you're not represented of England, Tom, but but that he say that he's saying this about the German team. Yeah, absolutely. Like prior to this tournament, nobody really thought they would make it this far, honestly, because like for like quite some time, nobody really knew where they were standing at, like. Fostecklenburg was experimenting a lot. Nobody really knew how to feel about this team and what they want to stand for. And the fact it worked out so well now, like everybody's looking at us and it's like, wow, that's some, some impressive football. Just, I mean, it feels very nice. But then again, they deserve it. Like when I look at this team on the pitch, nobody, no, no matter who's playing, I feel like it's 11 best friends playing and they leave their heart out there. Like they give it their all. And that's something. England have to be prepared for like they're gonna give a hundred and fifty percent on on Sunday. Like that's gonna be very rough. But at the same time, I think 
from a physical standpoint, Germany have a big advantage. I felt like, especially the game against Sweden, the first 30 minutes, that's where England were very passive when it comes to like one versus one stuff. So I think when they go up against even someone like Pop Hegering, who I would like to mention because she played five around five Bundesliga games last season, <laughs> struggled a lot with injuries as well. Now she's playing the tournament of her life as well. Um, and Oberdorf. Even can sub in Lena Ladwein, who's just as physical. That's going to be, I think, very important for Germany against England. But at the same time, I think England can use the space a little bit better than Germany does. So that's where they have to be very careful. It's it's going to be a super exciting final either way. Like the best teams of this tournament are facing off. Like what more do we want, really? Yeah, I I, I must agree, even though England beat Sweden uh, <laughs> and Sweden was my pick. Like yeah. I, I was doing this German podcast series where I said, very confident that Sweden are going to win the whole thing. Yeah, it's been it's been crazy days in in uh, Sweden and the media and everything. So um, it's uh, but but it's always always like this in tournaments. I think with like um, you know who gets in into the bubble of tournament football not the covid bubble <laughs> but but the, the bubble of performing and everything is uh, going for for a team no injuries i mean even if if teams have had covid cases it's i mean we, we can say, this is my swedish heart talking but but it was a bit uh, un, unlucky that sweden had so many covid cases at the same time uh, when they chose to to live outside um, city areas and and stuff like that, so, but but it is what it is, and I do also think that I'm gonna go what we talked about uh, on this podcast. Um, I think it was last week when Elena Sadiku from Eskilstuna uh, was on that the Swedish players hasn't had haven't had um, a regular game time in their clubs. Um, and I do think that that's a factor, uh, because, uh, like in Germany, we, we can look at them, these two teams that they have starting players, uh, in their clubs and they have been playing regularly. Um, although I think we have to say something about Alex Pop rather than she's just an amazing striker, because what, what does she mean for German women's football? Yeah, she's like very representative of the mentality the Germans are always praised for, I think. It's just absolutely inspiring to me, especially because if you look at her story at the club, she's playing as defensive midfielder most of the time. She's not even used to striking anymore because they want to use her physicality in the club. So for Stecklenburg, who she made her Bundesliga debut under in Duisburg, back in the day they know each other they trust each other it's like it's like a little love story almost and like this trust she's paying it back a hundred percent like like i said she wasn't even seen as a starter prior to this tournament she was like seen as the joker and then leah Schiller got covid and she got into the team and paid it back right away i just think the fact she's playing her first euros ever i i cannot stop mentioning this but like 
it's just incredible, like going into this tournament, even the past few months where she was dealing with a very ugly knee injury. She just returned in, in March and was out for like nine months, even longer than that, had setbacks. It's just incredible to me, like on her mind was always playing this tournament. I want to play a Euros in my career. It might be the last chance. And that's what she was fighting for. And I just think this is almost like a fairy tale, like get your books out and movies. This is this is the story we need to tell. Yeah, I mean, she deserves all the praise she gets. And, and Tom, we have a very delicious golden boot race here now between Beth Mead and Alex Pop ahead of Sunday. Yeah, Beth Mead, I think, slightly ahead on the assists, but head-to-head head on the goals. And, of course, Pop, the first player to ever score uh, in every match up to the semifinals of, of the Women's Euros, which is a, a, a great stat for her. Um, and I... I think, uh, well, it, it's hard to see Pop not getting one goal in the final. So Beth, maybe Beth Mead's going to have to score as well. Um, but I, th- the thing with Pop is, like Jazz was saying, it, when you were kind of studying this German team over the past few months, I don't think you could have predicted that she would be playing um, at all, to be honest with you. Maybe that's my own lack of knowledge coming through on the on the German team. But I... I we look. We were, I was sitting down in around April and May with my boss and trying to predict some of the starting 11s and we were going through various graphics of what we could do for the front page of the of the paper. And just because of her injuries recently over the last sort of 15 months and just the way that some of the other players like were playing, Schuller and I think Vasmuth as well, I guess I didn't really have Pop in my mind at all as somebody who was going to be a poster star for this tournament. Um, and I don't think I don't think anybody did. I was looking back through all the kind of pullouts and the magazines, and you don't from before the tournament. Pop Stacey isn't really there, um, but um, she's led from the front magnificently. I think she's um, spoken very very well about the sport and team, and 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 yeah, I, I um, she's a very if she does win the golden boot, she's a very worthy winner. Um, but I think Mead has also really shined well, um, and it's that's going to be absolutely fascinating. I think it'd be interesting to say, I'm going on a slightly long answer here, but um, we know that for England, in for this aerial, dealing with those aerial balls like who, uh, sorry, like Pop scored from last night, if it's Millie Bright marking Pop, I think that's a different thing. If um, if it's Williamson in the air up against Pop, I'd be more concerned for England because Williamson's strengths are with the ball and her creativity and uh, excellent technical abilities in that side of things. I, that's that's a really interesting part of the game for me on the final. Um, if it's bright, an absolute rock. And uh, yeah, those they're quite different centre-backs and it'll be fascinating to see how that plays out. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's going to be a lot of 1v1 battles that we will call tasty uh, on Sunday, I think. <laughs> but but Willie, um, if you were Tommy Strott, 
right now. Uh, would you like kind of like just mention here that Alex Pop is playing in the defensive midfield in in Wolfsburg? Would you, if if you were the coach now, would you start thinking to perhaps move her? I think it's good. Ha- I mean, yeah. I bumped into Tommy a few games. I should have asked him, but uh, I—it's a good option to have. You know, I, th- I think she's she's that type of player that she'll always find a place in your team. It's just about how you best deploy her. And who's that player? I think I think he's got a lot of really exciting options in the front line. So that's probably why he's thinking. Well, I can still keep her in the team. But she's not taking a place of one of the maybe the younger forwards that he's wanting to continue to develop. So it's a way of keeping her on the team. I mean, she does a really good job in in the holding midfield position as well, in the defensive midfield position. So I, I I understand why he does it. But when you look at her Euro performances, I suppose it does differ or it does beg the question, like why is she not playing in that nine role? For our club, but yeah, I, I think I think that's probably it. It's because he has got a lot of really exciting young younger attacking options, and they're not doing too bad. I think uh, no, I I do think that uh, a, f- a few of the coaches that will uh, that, that manage the teams that will play in the new Champions League uh, this season uh, will have Alex Pop in mind when they when they do their tactical. Analysis before before going up against Wolfsburg and this upcoming season, which will be excited exciting. Um, but just you mentioned that you had Sweden as um, one of the favorites to win. We, we, you're not the only one. But why did you think that Sweden were favorites going into this tournament? I thought that they had a very balanced squad with experience. And um, I, I kind of just looked at the past uh, and how far they always made it. And I just kind of thought, now is their time. <laughs> Third, second, first, kind of like that. But um, from from what I've seen, and I, I, I did watch all the games, it was just too inconsistent. And I think considering how good the players are that he had available, it was just not enough. He didn't get the best out of them. And that was kind of didn't really make sense to me like I couldn't explain why that is and maybe like if he he didn't react quick enough to change the game around a little bit but I guess that's a question for you why you think it was just too inconsistent yeah I I have a lot of thoughts I'm gonna write them down someday perhaps this afternoon <laughs> just a teaser no but uh, the fact is that I think is this is very interesting because um, in Sweden and media it's been mostly the players that have been criticized and not the coaching in particular and really with the squad and and what we have seen from from the Swedish national team um, this tournament uh, what is your take on that is it because we have spoken about this before with Norway's um, performance against England, for example, but then also their performance versus Austria. And here we have a Swedish team going in as one of the favorites, I would say, and they still ended up 
sharing the bronze medal with France and they are actually quite heavily criticized. Um, do you think, what is your, just your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, firstly, I think it shows you how well Sweden have done over the last three or four years. The fact that expectations are so high that a semi-final is deemed as failure. Uh, so that's, I suppose, some sort of positive that suddenly semi-finals are failures, uh, which it was because I, I think it's more than just losing to England. I think the tournament has been disappointing in terms of performances. I, it's, it's always easy from the sideline, from the stand, sorry. When you're on the sideline and you're working with the players every day, you see things that supporters don't and media don't and, so I've got sympathy for Peter in terms of being there and done that. And I'm sure a lot of people questioned a lot of my selections, but I just know that if I'd been the Sweden manager in this Euros, I think the this, this starting lineup and the substitutions would have been a lot different from what they were. I feel there was a disconnect between what the players wanted to do and what they were being asked to do. We've spoken a number of times about the Adidas campaign. Uh, and that was very bold. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe the manager should have been engaged more before they came out with a really bold campaign like that, because that was not reflective of his, his team selections and the performances. But I just get that feeling that when you watch the players, the players wanted to play that boldly, but they were just slightly restricted with selections and with, uh, with tactics. Because players like Blomqvist, who were hardly on the pitch, Hurtig, who was hardly on the pitch, Benison, who wasn't on the pitch enough, uh, you know, we we debated for a lot, a long time about, you know, you could easily make the team more attacking, especially when Jon Anderson was missing through COVID. You could have played Rolf as an attacking fullback. There were so many attack-minded options that could have happened that didn't. And I, and I think that's ultimately where they failed. They just looked to be. A little bit of energy missing from the performances from some of the big players and, and I think it is because they felt a little bit deflated in terms of, yeah, they just looked restricted and I think that does start sapping your energy as a player when you want to play in the front foot, you want to be attacking and you're almost, you've got these, you've got this, these reins on pulling you back all the time. Uh, that That's what it looked like. Yeah, and he actually, when he spoke to Swedish media yesterday uh, for the last press conference before they left England, he actually brought uh, Lena Hurtig up as an example of a player that they just hadn't uh, been able to to fit in, and he regretted that uh, a lot. I just want, yeah, I just wanted to to mention that. But as journalists now, Tom and Jazz, because this is. This is an interesting question. I think this is an interesting question because I'm, I work with communication, um, on my daily job. Like the fact is that media, I, I mean, of course, media's job is to criticize and question and choices and, uh, from the coaches and, and question players, um, ability to perform and, and what's happening. But what, is, what is, when you are going to do that, Tom, in your job, how do you feel for it and how do you, how, what is your approach to it when you do it? To, to asking a manager about what went wrong, do you mean? Yeah. Um, I think, well, I think that it's such an important part of the process because 
for the fans, they don't have that chance to, act, you know, you feel responsible that you're asking on behalf of the fans of what, what they want to know. And it's, and it's why, for example, so many journalists are asking Serena Wiegmann why she's not starting with Alessio Russo. That's been quite a regular question. Um, and the Swedish journalists who were at Bramall Lane, um, did ask some interesting questions of, of Peter Gerhardsen. Um, he did come under a, a bit of scrutiny. But uh, I actually had, I felt myself having a, a lot of sympathy for Sweden. Um, just trying to look at it very uh, fairly. And um, the one thing that really struck me is the, how both France and Sweden were quite unlucky with just with the scheduling being in Group C and D. They both had two days fewer recovery time than England and Germany. Now, England and Germany deserve to be in the final. Of course, they do. They're both the best, two best teams in the tournament, but it definitely helps. And it's no coincidence that the finalists are from Group A and B. Five years ago in the Netherlands, both finalists came from Group A. And there's a trend there. You have to go back to 2009 for the last time that any finalist of the women's Euros came from Group C or deeper. That's my little Tom Silly stat for you on the pod. But I did think that was interesting that generally the finalists in the women's Euros always come from Groups A or B. Um, and that for me is down to the fact that you get more recovery time between the group stage and the knockout matches. And in, in England and Sweden's case, those two days were crucial because Sweden had fitness problems. They had COVID issues. They had a few niggles. We know Aslani didn't train. Uh, I think two days before the final, I think, I think there was, um, also a report that Hedvig Lindahl hadn't trained either. Um, you know, these things matter. And, um, in that sense, the scheduling for England and Germany has fallen perfectly. Yeah. And, and just continue from there. Yes. As you know, you have been working as a journalist for a long time and, when you, when you cover, have covered uh, the German national team and German football, what is your take on, on performances and how do you uh, just approach things like this? What I, what I tend to do is also to, to talk to other journalists or, you know, people I trust who watch the games just so I know if I'm like maybe seeing something wrong. Like, I, I never really just jump into a take I have. Like, when I think, oh, this player didn't perform well, I don't just put it out there because I want to try and at least back it up. Because sometimes, you know, <laughs> I'm too stubborn and someone else would tell me, but, you know, did you look at this player who did that? And maybe that's a result of, of this happening. So I always try to be very careful because I know that the words of criticism that I could potentially put out there can also hurt. And that's never my intention, obviously. So I'm always like super, super careful. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting because Tom, you, you've been covering this tournament now, um, for weeks. Do you think that it's, you, you can see differences between countries media, how they, um, approach their national teams with questions? Like, because this is also interesting. Absolutely, actually. I thought it was really interesting last night, um, uh, in for the French post-match press conference, for example, um, Colleen Diacre actually, I think answered five questions. It was quite short, quite quick. Um, and I was quite surprised, um, that there were not very many questions, um, probing into what had gone wrong for, you know, another opportunity missed for France, um, uh, still waiting for the first final. Um, and she spoke a lot about she was given i guess the opportunity to talk about how how much it was hurting them and how disappointed they were uh and she praised germany but there wasn't a really forensic kind of scrutiny or breakdown of of any specific um decisions um whereas i we have seen 
that have you know been very different angles from other countries. I also found it interesting, not not that I want to criticise colleagues at all, because all of the questions were very interesting, but um, uh, my colleagues from the German media last night, when they were talking to Martina Vostecklenburg, lots of their questions were about the match, of course. They were about the match, looking back at the match, and very few were looking ahead to the final, whereas in the English media, perhaps just by habit, when as soon as England were through, lots of the questions were immediately, okay, let's talk about the final, let's talk about what comes next, looking forward, which I thought was just a really interesting, different approach. Um, and I guess maybe part of that is because I understand the German um, camp have given very frequent media access to the, the, the German team, actually, at their training base in London. So perhaps they're going to have more opportunity to talk to players and staff um, before the final, whereas in England's case, might be a couple more days now until we 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 hear with uh, we speak with Serena Wiegman. but th- there are different approaches. Yeah, absolutely, um, and also enormous differences in the number of people covering um, the, some of the teams. Um, and uh, Belgium was one example when they lost to Sweden. Um, I think all of the questions um, that Yves Sernils faced um, in his post-match press conference came from either English or Swedish journalists. Um, uh, there was, I think, there was a TV camera um, for the Belgian crew behind me. And of course, there were more Belgian reporters in the mix zone as well, doing a great job. But we're very lucky. We're very lucky in England that there are lots and lots of reporters covering this tournament. And it's not the case for a country like Belgium, who are where the women's game is not yet professional. And I think um, eight of the only eight of the Belgian team were professional players. It's still a job that does this job reporting on women's football. Sadly, doesn't exist for enough people yet around the continent. So yeah, we are seeing huge, huge variation across across the, the, the continent. Yeah, and will it, Peter Jaradjohn, he always mentions when you speak to him about this, actually. I think it's interesting as well because he knows that media has to ask questions like, okay, what happened? Uh, but he always says that I don't know what happened because I, I prob- I'm probably the not good best person to ask because I'm full of emotions along the sideline. I have a scrappy view sometimes over the pitch. Uh, and sometimes I can't, I can't have those answers until I've seen the game um, again uh, on a TV screen. And as a coach, when you get these questions from media, because obviously we want the answers, but what do you feel about about that and how, how do you have you approached it yeah I think I think it's really tough because the emotions are running so high and sometimes you might praise a victory and then realise the performance wasn't as good as you initially thought or vice versa so it works both ways and a lot of the time certainly I wouldn't address the players we would have a huddle after the game but I would be very generic and not go into any detail about the game because I knew there was a chance it would be emotion and I would always get a better view from the camera when I went home and watched it back so when I certainly spoke to the players I would I would try and stay away from any game game specifics with the media I always felt a responsibility that you have to try and give them answers you could give them very generic stuff but I do feel there's there's a little bit of responsibility that you have to give them something you know they've they're there to do a job just like you are you're there to win the game and get a performance and they're there to report on the game and ask questions so I, I, I did also feel a responsibility to journalists to try and give them a little bit more than it was a game of two halves uh, the players played like the players put in a lot of effort so 
it was, yeah, it's hard to get the balance. I would always try and uh, compose myself and just get a few minutes on my own before I would speak to a journalist. I think that's really important. I think you've got to try and detach yourself from the game in terms of emotionally. Uh, but yeah, it's, I, I've all, I always found it really difficult uh, because, as I said, try and stay away from specifics with the players because you get to speak to them tomorrow whereas you don't get to speak to the journalists again tomorrow. So it's try to give them something because they're due that respect. But at the same time, and, and it's also difficult if you if there's been an individual mistake and everybody knows it. But for me, you cannot throw an individual under the bus. Uh, and that was always really tough because because you can't, everybody knows it. So I say it was a, we, we, I remember we had a real big mistake early in the second half against Chelsea at the start of last season and it was like the defender misplaced a five yard pass to the goalkeeper and we conceded within a minute of the second half starting to go 2-0 down and that was it game over and you're getting asked questions about that and everybody knows knows what happened but you, ju- you just cannot come out and say it uh, so you might try and be generic about that sort of thing to protect the player but yeah, it's tough. It's tough, and I have got sympathy for for managers immediately after the game. Yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting, and and it's great that we we talk about this on here. But let's just end this now. Tom, predict England, Germany. How many goals, and who is going to win? Uh, well, I've been predicting all the way through that England would win. I thought that back from from May, so I, I, I guess I've got to stick with that. But I'm less confident now than I've ever been <laughs> because of how strong Germany are. Um, I think, honestly, I think we'll go to penalties. Uh, we haven't had a penalty shootout yet in the tournament. We had two five years ago, two in 2013. We're, we're due a shootout. It would be a bit unusual for the tournament to finish without one. So I know, again, that's quite a, it's quite a lazy prediction. But I think we'll go to penalties. Um, and oh, that's a horrible way to put it the other way. But um, <laughs> I, I think I, I'll stick with England because I think England. I think what we can't underestimate for this final is the impact of a full a full crowd, and not just a full crowd who are kind of there to politely applaud. This is a full crowd who are going crazy for England. Like the atmosphere we've seen has been. I've never seen anything like it. Um, in the women's game, you've probably go, got to go back to the um, the World Cup in 1999 uh, in America for anything close. Well, that, and that was more people, but for anything like this kind of atmosphere where... Uh, so, yeah, I, I will stick with England just... I think I would go something like 1-1 penalties. Uh, and... and, and? And England on penalties, which is yeah, yeah, England, yeah. I just, I, I just wanted you to say right, that. Yeah, I wanted you to say that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, yes, predict the game. I'm going to say two-two after 90 minutes. Both Mead and Pop score, and then Germany are going to win after penalties because they've already beaten England in front of a big home crowd, so they know what it feels like. And they want to feel it again, perhaps. Um, <laughs> Willie, we, we, I asked you this question last, the last podcast we, we recorded. Why is Germany gonna win and why is England gonna win? If the game was played in anywhere else in the world, I would say Germany, but I, I don't think you can, I think Tom, Tom's alluded to it. You cannot underestimate 
a full house at Wembley. And I said this at the time, but the nervous performance at Old Trafford will help England on Sunday because they have now done it. They've now played in front of 70,000 and that extra 10, 15,000 is not going to make a huge difference in terms of the, what it feels like. So I think England will win purely because they will be energised by a, a whole country. I've, ne- I've never seen, I've never seen this before. Like Tom says, the, the, the country, everybody from radio to TV to the person in the street supporting. And I think the players can feel it. And I think the players are thriving on that expectation. So I think energy wise, I just, sometimes it's just written in the stars. And I think this year it is. If Germany are going to win it, it is because they have managed to suffocate England and stop England doing what they've done so well this season, uh, this tournament. When England's got on top of teams, they've actually pressed the accelerator button again, and and they've they've really got on top of teams. I think they've done it. You know, Spain when when they got the equaliser, they then went for it against Sweden the other night when. They got the second goal, although Mary had a big, big save in between times. They then put their foot back on the accelerator button. I don't think you can do that to Germany because Germany will not collapse like Spain did and Sweden did. So if Germany's best chance of winning is to, to stand up against that, that energy. And, uh, then you're looking at that midfield. We've spoken about it a lot of times. That midfield is pretty exceptional. However, the manager also changes that midfield at the right time like she did last night and like she did uh, against Austria as well, I think she did. I think it was a double sub again with the two midfielders, uh, Magul and the Brits coming off. Yeah, and with those words, we end this episode. Uh, thanks for coming on, Tom and Jazz. It's been great to have you and very interesting. It's been a huge pleasure. Lovely to speak to you all and it's been a wonderful tournament. Yeah, really wonderful. Oh, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. (laughs) So uh, let's just uh, say bye-bye and take care until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.